Hey everyone, uh, before we start today's show, we do have a request to make, and that is the request of your financial support. Uh, for just a few bucks a month, you can help us make this show, help us cover our costs, help us cover a little bit of the time that we put in into uh, making a show that you hopefully enjoy. And if you've gotten anything of value from the show, from listening to it, from taking our advice on the, the many topics that we have covered, uh, I'm sure that you will see that there's a lot more value to our show than perhaps some of the more expensive components that you could be putting your, your dollars towards. <laughs> Any potential sponsors, please disregard that comment. Uh, but the, the couple bucks a month will help us pay for things like um, the, the hosting fees and, and similar costs. Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Endurance Innovation. And today we've got uh, another guest that um, is someone I've known for quite a while and had a lot of great interactions with, but it's, I guess, time to make that a little bit more public and to, uh, to talk about some of the, the neat science that we've been discussing around the world of cycling. So joining us today is Kurt Bergen-Taylor, and he's the uh, one of the performance scientists for the well Canadian Sports Institute in Ontario or Cycling Canada, depending on how you organize it. But uh, welcome to the show, Kurt. Hi, Andrew, Michael. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, Kurt, our pleasure. Thank you very much for taking the time to uh, chat with us. And Kurt, where are you located right now? So at the moment, I'm back in the UK, back um, where I'm from originally, just because of the coronavirus thing mainly. Sure. And um, yeah, with a rearrangement of the Olympics, it's uh, still a bit tricky to think about <laughs> the location-wise, but at the moment, I'm back at home. Yeah, you guys have really been dealt a curveball with this one. Like I know the the whole quadrennial is based on timing everything for optimizing your performance for this one small window. And now all of a sudden at the last minute, it's like, well, we're going to push it off a year. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a big challenge. It's a challenge that I didn't expect to happen when I first signed up to this kind of uh, quadrennial approach. But it's something that I think the real um, athletes that do well at the Olympics are the ones who are going to deal best with the situation. So we're just really trying to see it as, a, as an opportunity um, rather than a kind of problem. And I guess everyone's in the same boat right now. It's not like only one country is having to deal with this, but uh, it's just, like you said, a, a question of who adapts the best and who can revise their training plan to peak at the right time. Yeah, definitely. So why don't we start off by just talking a little bit about yourself, just your your background and how you got into cycling? Sure. Yeah. So I guess it all starts really um, with being a, a, a bike racer. So I kind of grew up racing my bike and um, went to university and was lucky that had a pretty good uh, cycling program kind of attached to it so i did my undergraduate degree um in human biology actually i kind of went down the the more kind of classical science approach and uh rode my bike a lot um and then after three or four years of doing that i kind of realized that you know riding my bike was maybe not gonna progress into a career as such so um uh, moved into doing a, a master's and at the time I, I went to loughborough university so i was really lucky loughborough university in the uk is kind of the biggest sports university um and has a real big prestigious um viewpoint in terms of 
sports science and physiology and nutrition. And so I was lucky enough to go to their master's program. And during that master's program, I also then moved onto a PhD at Loughborough University. So that was a really great experience to take that academic principles and then move into a PhD. And then that PhD actually became a part-time PhD, which I did alongside. Um, I worked for the university providing applied sports science. So that was really interesting opportunity because Loughborough has um, 14 or 15 different um, performance teams that they support across everything from 100-meter sprinters in athletics all the way across to badminton, to netball, to swimming. So there was lots of opportunities to do applied sports science projects, and there's a lot of student athletes there that are really willing to kind of dive pretty hard into the science. So that was um, doing that alongside my PhD was probably the first experience that really made me want to work in elite sport and then knowing that I um, you know, was a cyclist myself and that was kind of where my background was. Um, I was also really lucky then to get involved in um, a squad called Team KGF. So um, they're now called Who What Bike, if people in the track mm-hmm. world um, yeah, totally. know what they're about. And um, yeah, so Dan Bigham, who was kind of the, the brainchild of that, um, was a friend who I cycled with quite a lot. He's from a local area. Like I was only 20 minutes drive from the velodrome that they used. And some of their athletes, Jonathan Whale in particular, he was a student at Loughborough, used to ride with a lot. So I, with my part with Loughborough Sport, we did some some brainstorming and the cool and some cool ideas and at the very foundation of team kgf which was first called i kind of helped them guys out support wise so i remember doing the um manchester world cup with them which was kind of my first um uci event on the track in terms of from a sport science or or performance support supports perspective and um that really kind of highlighted to me that i wanted to work in in cycling and and particularly in track cycling just because of the the enrichment of the amount of data that's you know in track cycling and, and and how visible improvements are and how logical it can be in terms of that integration with science so yeah i did that for a while and then um probably similar to you andrew jumped into another um problem before i finished my phd maybe not problem opportunity um so yeah so went to canada i'm still with a part-time finished phd and um yeah i've been working there now close to 20 months um working with mainly the women's endurance program but also working across the men's endurance and the sprint program in terms of trying to provide uh, performance science support really so looking at the opportunities to innovate and and really filling that space around be it from a aerodynamics point of view from a physiology testing strategy um, equipment side piece like that so there's a lot of kind of hats and roles afterwhere um, but it's a really enjoyable job that's a really interesting well an interesting background that you've got um, first of all finding anything that's got an application for phd research is phenomenal <laughs> so yeah. quite often you get pigeonholed into something that you never look at again in your life but uh, no it's awesome that you're able to get to use that um, the other thing that uh, that really jumps out at me is just the the mention of innovation within the cycling world because the UCI is known for having this overriding principle that they don't really want to see innovation. They want to keep things static and just have it about human performance, but that's not the case at all from what you're saying. Yeah, I think um, it's been really interesting seeing how the way the UCI have gone about it. And I think um, 
they'll they'll look at pushing that forward even th- further i think post the olympics um but you know if we talk about bunch rate bunch racing road racing you know then yeah there's probably physiology is a real you know main determinant of performance i would say but when you talk about pursuiting particularly or even time traveling or something like that that interaction between a rider equipment technology innovation is is huge and actually in track cycling if you're not doing that then you are not gonna you know really win at the highest level because it is so integral the speeds they're going at as i'm sure you've discussed before it the the amount of uh drag that's caused and rolling resistance that's caused when you're doing 65 70k an hour it's um it's pretty pretty big so anything you can do around that to manipulate it is um is really important you sort of answered a question that i was going to post uh, about why is it that and I, i've seen this across other sports scientists and across other people i've heard talk about the subject it seems like there's way more of a of a really in-depth scientific approach focus specifically on the track and my kind of my conjecture was going to be is that is that you can there are more variables that you can control on the track versus out in the you know out in the world but uh you you brought up a much more important one i think and that's speed but do you think that the fact that you can actually control and uh design better experiments better indoors that has any role to play with the fact that there are more uh you know sports scientists involved in track yeah, that's that's massive. I think the first thing that really kind of hits you when you be, start working in track is just the amount of data that you can collect. It's um, you know, you can get half a second data every half a second on pretty much any variable you want, and you can get even higher frequency if you want to. And um, that's everything from physiological parameters to aerodynamic parameters to environmental conditions and all this data is taken in and really start to piece together why things are happening and you can get a much clearer picture like you said because Mm -hmm. you can control the variables you've got known conditions that you can you measure and you can start to see how your interventions have an impact on performance yeah it's definitely very interesting to see in action Um, i remember the few times that i'd been to the velodrome in milton watching watching you and uh and the rest of the teams there just recording everything monitoring everything um, every effort is video recorded and all that data is analyzed after the fact that it's just, it's incredible how much detail you go into with all of this. Yeah. And it has to, you know, we, we're really trying to push the margins and, you know, ultimately try and compete for a gold medal. And I think in the track, in an event that's so short, the margins are so fine that if you can find a 10th here or a 10th there and really start to understand someone's performance, both from a physical, technical, tactical, um, engineering even approach then any data you can pull into that is a is a worthwhile observation to be able to act upon and that's something that we've we found big success with in the last kind of 18 to 20 months so maybe for the people who aren't familiar um the team pursuit event uh so can you give us an idea of what kind of time frames we're looking at what kind of separation between highly competitive teams and dropping off the podium or being 10th place or last place um, just to, to have some perspective on the whole competition. Yeah, so Team Pursuit's actually gone gone mad in the last uh, 18 months, really. And I think a lot of it is actually due to, to tech. And you'll, and we can talk a little bit about that moving forward. But yeah, the last 18 months, we've seen big shifts, especially on the men's side, you know, not so much on the women's side yet. Um, but I definitely think that will come as more people put more resource towards that and as we push towards the olympic year but yeah particularly on the men's side if you look at um, the last world championships there was you know seven teams all within 
uh, you know, nearly at world record pace from four years ago. So there were seven teams at 350 pace, which is um, what kind of won Rio. And then there was the next team after that was, I think, 352. So it was an unprecedented kind of year in terms of if you wanted to even be in the top eight, you had to be kind of riding what would have put you in top four perspective for um for the rio olympics so the the margins are pretty close and um you know the speeds now that people are going are speeds that people used to think you could train at for maybe two or three laps and now people are doing 16 laps of it you know you look at um some of the teams that are now going sub 350 um their peak speed and their speed per lap is you know speeds that people used to kind of train at as thinking was over speed and you know that's really interesting to, to kind of dig into and learn from in a way. And I think that's one thing that we do pretty well at Canada is we, we tend to learn off um, other people as much as we can, because we, we don't have the biggest budget and especially working mainly with a women's program, looking at the insights from the men's program has really helped kind of shift our performances further over the last kind of six to 12 months. I guess one really interesting problem with going faster is because you're dealing with fixed gearing, you now have to optimize the RPM range that you're trying to spin at. So by getting that faster gearing, um, you either need to spin your legs a lot faster, which becomes less efficient, or you need to sacrifice some of the initial acceleration because you've got that harder gear ratio. Yeah, that's a really interesting dynamic in track that I think a lot of people um, don't put as much time into and actually starting to break down the determinants of power production is really vital in track because like you said you you're on a fixed gear and you your cadence in a way is dictated to you so actually the thing that you can manipulate is torque and that's something that um is very different to kind of most cyclists are guessing that they self-determine their own cadence and they pick a cadence that's probably really tightly regulated and whereas in, in track cycling you go from essentially zero cadence all the way up to less you know 120 cadence um and then you you span that full spectrum on a fixed gear so understanding that torque power relationship is really really important in track and that's something that we've tried to push a lot around our riders and how we can kind of get a competitive edge is starting to break that power production and how you produce that power down and, and looking at replicating them demands in training that's so cool. That's you're you're absolutely right about you know generally speaking when we're riding on the road your your self selected cadence is fairly tightly regulated. I've you know I've read and seen uh, similar findings, but of course you can't really you can't play that game on the track. No, yeah, exactly. It's um it's selected for you in a way. So the only thing you can do is like you said manipulate the gear ratio. And once it's strapped on and you're on the track, there's not much you can do about it. You've just got to kind of go ahead and do what um, you've been training for so yeah it's a really interesting conundrum of that initial start and acceleration component to it and then also um that kind of end performance if, if you will and that's even just with endurance cycling it gets even more specific when you start looking at track sprinting and how you look at gear optimization for that um you know because you've got the acceleratory component which is really critical in there whereas i'd say now with most endurance programs that in that initial acceleration is probably you can offset the cost of that with faster laps in the back end Hmm. um so i'd say most teams now are starting to tend towards going on bigger gears and accepting that they might take a little little hit at the start Um, whereas in sprint cycling for sure you know if you ride against someone who can jump and accelerate really hard then you have to consider that relative to your kind of top maximal speed so yeah it's a really interesting kind of insight that you've got to look at i think the closest that i've ever actually been to that scenario in race conditions is forgetting to shift my bike out of my top gear <laughs> when i'm in a triathlon 
And then uh, knowing how difficult that is when you get on there and just the the muscular force, because you're using a different type of muscle fibers as well compared to the endurance fibers. Um, but yeah, it, it takes a lot out of your legs. So I can only imagine when you've got thousands or hundreds of thousands of people watching you, um, just how much stress and how much pressure that adds to everything. Oh yeah. I think when you start to understand track cycling, it, it, it's pretty impressive in that, you know, it, yeah, endurance track cycling is prom- majorly aerobic in kind of in facet because it is, you know, it's a long event, three to four minutes kind of long, but actually when you look at the demands, the, the powers that you're having to produce early on just to get the gear going and the way that people are being so aggressive now you know, in the men's cycling, you're probably 1500 Watts off the line um, <laughs> just to get it going. And the first minute you're probably over seven or 800 Watts. And then after that, you've got to settle into a ride. That's probably anywhere from four to 600 Watts, depending on kind of what position you're in. So it's, um, it's pretty impressive to think how hard and aggressive you have to be. And then, maintain that for a duration um the demands are so specific now that you're starting to see a real big change and and you're also starting to see um people having to just push the boundaries of where physiology could be and that integration between that pushing the boundaries and the tech side is what's really fascinating to work in just to blow people's heads a little bit more i remember andrew you you uh in a very old episode um talking about the force production required to generate that kind of power at low I oh love yeah, things. and yeah. I remember the the like the the force was completely ridiculous. It was like a massive squat, you know, single leg squat essentially, or leg extension over and over again. Well, I think the calculation I had done was something like fifteen hundred watts at one hundred and thirty rpm, and it ended up being twice your body weight. Um, so you need to pull down with the the bars in order to actually put that force on the pedal. Oh, for sure. So starting from scratch, um, with a lower RPM in order to get the same power, you need to have a higher force. So that just means like, first of all, I don't know how the bikes don't get ripped in half. And I guess maybe sometimes they do, but, uh, but it's, it's incredible the amount of force that gets put on the frame. Like you don't often think about that, but this is just an otherworldly level of performance that most people can't even fathom. Yeah, I'd say track cycling is the true uh, test of cycling equipment. Like I've seen more cranks and power meters and bikes being broken in track cycling than I have in the whole career of racing on the road. So, um, yeah, it's pretty impressive what these athletes can do. And um, they're really inspiring to work with from from that perspective. Given all of the all of this really interesting research and the kind of the minute analysis that you do at the track, can you think of a couple of examples of taking that and exporting it to uh, road cycling or triathlon? And the reason I ask is because the majority of our listeners, uh, maybe they've been to a track a handful of times, but really they're, you know, they're triathletes or, or road cyclists. So is there anything that you guys have you know, you've seen it at, at the track and then you said, hmm, this might apply to, to road. I mean, a bike is a bike is a bike on, on some level. Yeah, there's, there's definitely massive transfer. And I think, especially when you're looking at racing against time. So, you know, probably the, the easiest transfer to look at, first of all, would be kind of any time trial situation, be that as a, a bike leg of a triathlon or as, as an independent time trial and starting to understand the determinants of performance, first of all. So, um, you know, if you look at that, obviously you, you've got specific um, power duration demands and understanding them and what you're capable of in terms of pacing and strategies. And they obviously extend a little bit further. But some of the things that we've done with our cyclists, which has been really beneficial, is actually starting to understand um, how you cycle when you have 
high inertia and high energy compared to kind of what most people when they ride their bike have in low energy so oh. it, it it bugs me a little bit when you see you know time trial trainers and they're uh they're going out and they want to ride at 45 50k an hour but actually they spend very little time riding at 45 or 50k an hour and actually when you're riding at that speed your inertia and the amount of energy in your system and the way you pedal is completely different to say if you're riding at 25k an hour and going up a hill or um even training on a trainer for instance so really understanding um your ability to perform in that specific movement is really key and it's something we do a lot with our track riders is we get them out on their tt bikes at high, at high pace and high speed because we're asking them to to ride at 65k an hour at 115 cadence so we try and replicate that a little bit in the physiological demands of how we try and train to add that level of specificity so i think that's a big transfer you can see with athletes out on the road is if you're going to try and optimize yourself for that and spending some time at that high inertia and the gear ratios you have to be in and the the energy that's already in the system i think is really beneficial to performance can you describe that because that you're uh, i've never i've never considered that i mean not that i or anyone i work with is routinely riding at 50 kilometers an hour but i'm just uh from an academics kind of perspective curious about uh what those what those energy differences are yeah of course so you I'm sure you felt the the situation when you kind of go up a hill and you feel, you know, you've got that level of gravity. That's the main kind of component that you're overcoming and you feel your kind of pedal stroke analysis. If you would look at the way you distribute your power, you tend to find that you have a, uh, a longer contraction under a slower frequency. So your cadence will naturally come down and you'll see that your if you looked at where the distribution of the power is, you tend to see this over a longer period of the pedal stroke. What you find when you go much faster is actually because you've got so much energy in the system, you're contributing small amounts of energy to keep the system moving essentially because you've already got it up to speed. So the your pedal stroke tends to be at a much higher frequency, but a shorter duration of the pedal actual um, cycle itself. So you tend to see differences in, and that's where one of the innovations that we've had within track cycling has been really beneficial getting higher frequency measures of torque and looking at where that torque is produced as you can start to understand pedal stroke analysis a little bit more and what you actually see when you're riding at high speeds compared to when you're potentially riding at low speeds and that probably explains why if you look at the um the world tour for instance you know you have some phenomenal athletes who can ride up a hill incredibly fast and yeah they have you know high power to weight ratios but they're definitely you know similar to other riders whereas riders with um track pedigree you know someone like a Jerain thomas for instance or um can can ride really good time trials and i think that's because their physiology and the way they apply power to pedals they probably do a lot of specific work on that high inertia high speed um production of power and i think that's where you get good translation there oh interesting okay so i've actually heard about a number of pro triathletes doing motor pacing where they um they'll draft a car or a motorcycle just to get that higher speed. So is this kind of training in that regime that you're talking about? Yeah. So we definitely use, I mean, we're, we're pretty fortunate. We, we do a lot of team time trial stuff, um, which is really beneficial. Um, so you can keep high speed up there just because you're taking short turns and pulls, but yeah, we definitely do motor pacing stuff as well. Obviously motor pacing on a TT bike is probably, <laughs> um, a little bit sketchy if you're not super confident with the person who's driving it, but yeah, definitely on a road bike, we do a lot of, um, that that overpaced um high inertia work just to understand that that specificity of movement and it's something that we've seen really big benefits in hmm. very cool yeah that was something that i never fully understood before I didn't have an appreciation for how important it could be but i had heard of lots of athletes doing it i just didn't 
really know what they were going after, but um, but that makes sense. It's it's very much a case of train like you expect to race, so train under the same conditions. Definitely, and even testing your equipment at them conditions as well. You know, I've seen so many um, time trialists in the UK go on a an out and back course where you've got a big tailwind coming back, and you know they get back in in and they oh I wish I had a bigger ring than a fifty three, and you're like, well, maybe you should. <laughs> try riding to 65k an hour and you probably want a bigger ring on it and then understanding that kind of gear choice and you know you can look further into that in terms of optimization of the right gear the right chain line and things like that and making sure that's relevant to speed but yeah that's one of the big innovations that we've we've seen just from a simple perspective um has been really beneficial and then i guess another really transferable thing that we've seen and i know you guys have talked about it quite a bit is just it's not only understanding kind of max and and minimum aerodynamics but actually understanding kind of the whole picture and the averages really or or the distribution of Mm. that data so we've done a big piece around um you know you can take an athlete to a wind tunnel you can get great numbers or you can do four laps and calculate from the track what numbers there are but actually during an effort or during training when you're under load and fatigue where does your data sit relative to kind of your best case scenario and starting to really understand that distribution of aerodynamic drag is really really key and i think now with the amount of sensors that are out on the market and stuff like that i think that's so critical because so many people try and screw themselves up into a tiny little ball they get this really low cda number that they think is great and then half an hour into a race actually their cda is now double because they can't (laughs) hold it anymore and they would have been better off being a little bit more um cautious with their with their initial cda and then trying to kind of keep it between there because actually if they looked at the average of their data or the distribution it would have been you know a bit more beneficial for performance so that's something that i think is really translatable um going into kind of the the road scene and the time trial scene and and triathlon that's a really important consideration for for anyone who is looking to get into um uh, CDA analysis and CDA, you know, knowing your knowing your aerodynamic drag is super super useful because then you can do, you know, you can use programs like Best Bike Split to to have a pretty good idea of how you should be pacing in pretty much any any course in the world. But if you're basing that analysis on your as as Kurt just said as your on your best case scenario, then you're going to be in for a world of hurt, especially on a on a day that may be a little bit more blustery than you expect, or you know with weird yaw conditions you may not necessarily expect. There could be you know some surprises in store for folks. And that really reflects my own experience with the virtual wind tunnel as well, where we have some professional athletes who are very used to getting in the same position over and over and over again. And their results will be quite close to, and their position will be quite close to what they see on the road. But when we deal with less experienced athletes, that's where we see this big variation where it's very much the mentality of someone's watching me, I've got to be careful. Um, And then they get out on the road and then forget everything they've learned or everything they've tested. So yeah, it's, it's definitely about sustainable position and, and what you can actually do versus what your best number is. Absolutely. And even position under fatigue and like under power production, that's in track epitomizes that the most in that you've got to try and hold a position at, you know, anywhere from depending if you're male or female from 400 to 750 watts, um, for 30 or 40 <laughs> seconds for your kind of turn. So it, um, yeah, holding a position at that kind of power output when you know how important your position is, but you've got to squeeze out them watts is, um, you know, that's a real big challenge and something we dedicate a lot of time to in training, you know, is really having a metric that understands that and can quantify that. And then also giving the athletes insight and training towards how they can really be better at, at that, that combination of output versus input. 
I think that right there is an excellent takeaway for uh, for time trialists and triathletes is that the value of being able to hold your, and we've been kind of dancing around this, but the, the value of being able to hold your position when you're applying watts. You know, if you're if you're doing an Ironman course, sure, you're, you know, your you're watts at any point in time are not going to be very high. But if you're a short course specialist knowing draft illegal, then that makes a, makes a big difference. And then with Ironman, obviously, you have the, the duration fatigue factor setting in after, mm-hmm. you know, four to six hours on the side. Yeah, it's not going to feel the same as as the first few minutes. The uh, actually, I want to I want to look a little bit deeper into some of the points that you mentioned earlier. Um, so, first of all, you had said that the most recent men's competition was similar to the Olympic or the world record times in Rio, um, and you had also mentioned just the number of sensors that you're using to monitor data. So. I guess, can you expand a little bit on what you think the main contributions have been to improving that world record pace, as well as what kind of tools are in your toolbox right now? Yeah, so I think there's a few things that have contributed. And, you know, the the Danes are probably kind of the the leaders um, in terms of pushing this kind of world record from the men's side down anyway. And it's quite fascinating and interesting um, knowing um, my friend Dan Bingham has now started working with the Danish team, and you know he's probably. Oh, I didn't know that. That's yeah, cool. Okay, I just, I just heard I just heard of him interviewed uh, by Michael Erickson on uh, that triathlon show. So okay. when you mentioned his name earlier, I was like, oh yeah, I've uh, I've heard that that gentleman speak. Yeah, he's um he's a smart cookie, and yeah, he's been working with uh after who what bike kind of finished in a way because they're a trade team, and the UCI are no longer back in trade teams, and he wasn't in the in the running to kind of go to the Olympics. So he started working with the Danish team um, and they've took some big depth odds and I'm sure, you know, he's had some contributions to that, but um, the big things really are um, some understanding around pacing and gearing. And um, that's probably one of the biggest shifts you'll see with most of the teams. The teams that are running faster now are running bigger gears and they're training for that specific demand. So the old school kind of track cycling was use a smaller gear and you able to tolerate really high cadences and that got to a certain point um but as anyone knows trying to do 125 cadence and the only way you can go faster is to do 130 cadence then (laughs) it becomes a bit of a challenge so that's definitely been a big shift in terms of what the gear ratios people are pushing and that's definitely had a difference i think one of the other things that's made a massive difference is strategy around how people distribute their efforts so Mm. and the danes are a perfect example of this so if you looked at the danes two years ago their strategy was and it has some merit to it in a way in that they knew that the harder you go the faster you go but the longer you do a turn the harder it becomes because you're having to maintain that power so they tended to do shorter turns really hard pulls and try and maintain their speed and they were really good maybe to two and a half three k and they they probably really struggled to finish it off and there's two reasons to that really is that every time you do an exchange you lose distance and time um, because you're obviously moving a bike length from the front so you're having to do more distance relatively but also as soon as you add any exchanges in you're adding chaos and you're adding chances to make mistakes so you know a perfectly executed exchange can seem beneficial but actually um most of the time if you look at the data when an athlete exchanges like their data looks like they're you know they're not going from being at the front and doing a pull power to then going in the wheels and recovering it there's a lot of um chaos and that and i think eliminating them spikes in terms of power and having longer duration of pulls has been really beneficial especially when people are now in the line able to spend more time at lower powers because of the increase in aerodynamics so we're starting to see trends in not only pull power potentially being 
reduced or going faster for that pull power, but the power required to be in the wheels is also being influenced as well, which then allows for people to potentially spend more time in 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 recovery positions and allow them to contribute more. And if you're only asked to do two turns on the front, which is the way most teams are going now, is that essentially there'll be eight pulls and each rider will do two turns each. Um, that seems to be the way that most riders are progressing their performances and also having P4s, the kind of the last rider in the team, taking a, a large contribution because they're not really having to contribute to the start so much. So you tend to see this distribution now where your P1s, your starters, will take a lot of the load in the, the first half of the ride, get the team up to speed, tolerate that speed exchange, and then they'll do their second turn essentially because they've they've started the team off and most teams that do a two-turn strategy that that starter will then leave the race because only three have to finish so they're kind of expending their energy in the first two to three minutes and that's a really specific kind of physiological role and training for that and then you tend to find that your threes and fours are the ones that are responsible for backing up the ride so they're the ones who contribute to the speed and power at the back end of the ride and your p2s generally tend to just tolerate so they're there to just kind of buffer that interaction between the starting pace of the p1 and having to tolerate the the initial demands and then tolerating the kind of speed at the back end for the threes and fours to be able to kick on and not lose speed in the in the the later stages of the race that's fascinating it's a sport that i i sadly know less than i should but uh you know having this conversation's yeah super interesting obviously it sounds almost more like a chess game the way it's structured yeah it is it's um there's so many demands in it and and there's so many other variables like every time you go to a different track you've got that to deal with and that's a really interesting kind of phenomenon because um, you know, maybe similar to kind of if you go to a race in triathlon, but on a on a massive scale, and that you go to a track and you maybe only ride that track three times before you have to race on it. Um, and each track is different in the way it's shaped and the best line to take and the best way to exchange. And and most of the time when you're on the track, you're in a open track session, so you've got six other teams that are trying to do the same thing as you and you've got an hour and an hour and a half to try and get your efforts in and can be a bit chaotic so your ability to learn different tracks and understand where the bike is is super key because when people talk about drafting the thing that most people underestimate is most people think that drafting is all about being as close as possible to the wheel and that has some merits to an extent but actually when you're going 65 70k an hour actually your 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 lateral movement is the big killer in performance and um you find on a track because you're going so fast and and you're going into the corners actually you really want to try and limit lateral movement so that's super important with the line that people take on the track and then you know if you're having to input into the bike a lot and correct and you don't know where the person in front of you is going to go you actually tend to spend a lot more time in the wind um, because you're to the side of that person not necessarily the distance behind them and that can make a huge difference you know you can add 10 or 15 percent additional power when you're in the recovery positions just by not having good following um by by the lateral movement that you're causing so it's a really key thing is understanding different tracks and how you can contribute your learning process to different tracks and how that helps you um, minimize the output that you have to do basically when you're in recovery Sounds like this, a sports scientist dream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes. A nightmare. I don't know. Yeah, it could, I suppose it, it, it cuts both ways. 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's, uh, well, just so different than the demands of triathlon, where most triathletes, if they get within five feet of another rider, that's a close call for them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, yeah. And I know Ironman Texas was a great example of that. Um, was it two years ago now where they had all those draft packs for them? Because they, before the race, they said, we're not going to be monitoring this portion of the race for drafting. So naturally all these draft packs formed and there were a number of big accidents that were captured by some of the traffic cameras out there. But just the difference in the bike control and the difference between um, executing a good race and executing a poor race being just a matter of centimeters is unbelievable. Like that's just unfathomable for most triathletes. Our margins are just so much bigger than than the margins that Kurt and his uh, his men and women deal with. Yeah, the skill set of the riders is is pretty impressive when you think of the speed they go in with the crowds, uh, the g forces that they're they're um, being contributed to. It's uh, yeah, it's pretty impressive the decision making process. And I think until you get on a track and you go that fast and you see how quickly things come, and um, you know, it, it's definitely a uh, a shock to a lot of people who get on the bike for the first time, but it's uh, really enthralling and actually taking away the brakes and having a fixed gear actually gives you so much more confidence in your ability when you get on the road. Um, and you see there's a massive transition. You, know, you look historically at track riders making successful careers on the road, especially from the British system. And a lot of it, I think, contributes to their understanding of tactics and skill and being able to put themselves in the right place at the right time, especially from a, a road cycling point of view, because their skill sets are just so superior because they've had to deal with that speed and that that sense of being close and understanding how to ride within a bunch and a pack at high speeds. So are you telling all of our listeners to go out and buy a fixed gear bike and uh, start training on that? <laughs> I'd say it's a useful tool, especially uh, if you're in Canada and it's uh, unable to ride outside for six months, then you know maybe it's uh, a good addition. And yeah, it's super, super exciting and it's pretty addictive as most people get on a bike and know, you know, speed's good and uh, coming off the top bank and riding around with your friends, it can be, be a good, good fun. Nice. Yeah, having been on a track a few times, I certainly can say that there's there's some component of it that's addictive, but I have been nowhere near the speeds that uh, that even for coasting or even recovery rides your athletes would be doing. Yeah, it's um, it's pretty fast. One of the other questions that I had was actually related to UCI rules and how people, let's say, interpret them um, or how they change over time, um, because people often know that they're or they realize that they're pretty restrictive and they're, they're trying to make the, um, the physiology, the limiting factor, as opposed to the bike technology. So maybe the bikes haven't gotten that much faster in terms of aerodynamics, just because they've been fairly restricted, but what kind of innovations and what kind of workarounds for lack of a better term, have you seen for some of the rules? I think it's been really fascinating with the way the UCI has gone about it. And I had this conversation with one of my friends and we were talking about it. And I think in, in some regards, actually what the UCI have done by, adding a lot of restrictions and putting a lot of restrictions in players and some really specific restrictions that they've kind of in a way pointed at what's really important um and it's quite <laughs> look, fa- look over here yeah right? it's quite fascinating actually i think it, in a way it's pushed innovation even further because you've now put a box around it and you've said this is where people have to stay in and now you're finding the nations that weren't historically you know high level innovators are actually really pushing the, the limits and of performance because they're adding this level of innovation to it. And, um, you know, th- that's been really fascinating to me as they've come in and they've put these rules in, especially around, you know, 10 centimeter height of your extensions or the 15 degree rule of extensions and things like that. And it's like, 
you look at everyone now and everyone's adopting that kind of praying mantis position in terms of having their hands higher than up to that full 10 centimeters and having 15 degree extensions and looking at that and that and you know even looking around the skin suit technology and the uci came out and made a big fuss about textures and fabrics and textiles and and everyone kind of looked at it and was like oh why are they regulating that so much and now people are starting <laughs> to really look into it so it's really fascinating to see that and it shows you how important technology is because, you know, knowing the GB system and seeing them at 2012 and 2016 Olympics being so dominant, even when in the world championships beforehand, they maybe weren't as dominant a few months before. You can see that they just had these big technological advances that they could roll out at the Olympic Games and more and more programs are now starting to be able to do that. And, you know, they're, they're six or eight years behind. And that's probably one of the reasons why you're seeing that GB is struggling recently on the track. And yeah, they maybe don't have as many athletes that are at that level anymore, but they're definitely still um, struggling because a lot more teams are rolling out that kind of tech. And yeah, I think with the UCI rules, it's it, it's fascinating that they put all these rules in and um, I've actually seen more and more innovation that's happened because of it. Well, just look at the, uh, well, the the Team GB bike that that they were gonna have roll out for for Tokyo. That was a pretty pretty wild design. Yeah, exactly. And, and there's so many workarounds as well. You look at the one that stands out to me the most is um, Felipe Garner and Felipe Garner's bike. And you know he's an individual pursuit world record holder, amazing pursuer in, in the Italian team as well. And with this 10 centimeter rule, the if you look at the rule and how it's actually applied, the the 10 centimeters only needs to be from the pad. And essentially now that so many um, extensions are fully integrated into the bike, so essentially they sit um, against your forearm at all points. So it's not like a traditional kind of ski bar where you've got two points of contact, be it the pad and your hand at the end. They're now in contact with your whole arm. So essentially where you put the pad is completely redundant in terms of stability because you've now got a whole pad that is the extension. So with Ghana, they wanted to get his hands higher, so they just put the pad further up the extension. <laughs> so the outside pad, which is supposedly the piece that he's attached to, actually doesn't have any benefits to uh, to kind of where he's supported on his arm, and it's just there to satisfy the 10-centimeter rule. So, yeah, that's a, an interesting viewpoint there for sure. Yeah, speaking of the praying mantis position or, or it's, you know, less extreme cousins, there, you obviously see a lot of that in triathlon too. That's That's been a, a very popular theme in, in bike fitting where it used to be just a comfort thing for, you know, 10% of the population. Now you're seeing, you know, upwards of 50% of triathletes going with, uh, going with that position, especially in long course. Yeah, and it, I guess it makes sense potentially from two two perspectives. I mean, it, that isn't to say that the only position that people are most aerodynamic in is that. It just tends to be that that usually is the best scenario for people to hold and maintain because it ultimately gives you some level of support. It gives you something to lean on. You know, if you think of the old kind of Tony Martin position where your forearms are pointing <laughs> downwards, uh, if anyone's ever tried doing that, it's pretty hard to hold yeah. that position, especially when you're trying to produce power. So, um, yeah, it gives that gives that support, and especially now with the integrated extensions, like some of the setups that you can see um, where you have this full support package and custom extensions that fit at all points. The the comfort and ability to hold position is is massively different. And you know, I'm sure if you you look at not just from cleaning up the front end point of view, but your ability to hold position, you've kind of got a win win on both parts. And I do think that technology will become more available as we move forward. And I think the cost of it will come down. And I actually think a lot of 
bike manufacturers will get into that piece soon because they're missing on a piece of that pie. I so I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing that soon. We've already seen a little bit of that trickle down with, um, I think, Speedbar, which we've mentioned a few times, where they're a, uh, um, a provider for triathlon uh, custom aero bars where they take a 3D scan and they will mold it to your forearm. So it's it's really the manufacturing technologies that have allowed this, where you can do 3D printing, you can do um, lost core uh, layups with carbon and things like that that give you all this flexibility with shape, where if you were just dealing with something that was like an extruded or hydroformed piece of aluminum, um, there's only so much you can do with that. But carbon is essentially infinitely moldable. But even if you don't go, you know, full custom, like the, uh, we, we had Nick Salazar of TriRig on the show a little while back, mm -hmm. and he's got the scoop uh, pads that, that they're marketing and selling now. And all they are is just a longer pad, right? a longer pad holder and pad. And so you have uh, a much greater contact area between, it's not just elbow now, it's elbow and most of your forearm. And it's not, you know, it's obviously not going to be as comfortable as something that's fully custom, but also I think they're selling them for 150 bucks or something like that, or 160 US dollars. So they're, they're, they're available to anybody. That's not much more than a pad holder from 3T or anybody else on the market. And speed bar, I think is around 3000 euros. So yes. <laughs> you go. slight yeah, difference in price. Yeah. And you're seeing the technology just trickle down, like you said, in terms of just what you can now do with normal technology is, is pretty impressive, you know, taking different ski bars and different pads and, um, your ability to kind of lay things up differently is getting people into much better positions and that kind of icing on the cake potentially is that custom thing right at the, the fine level but yeah understanding that front end and how you can optimize it i think is probably a really key part that people maybe should put some time into especially when you know if you're looking at a triathlon you can think of it two ways in that one you're saving a lot of time potentially because you're on the bike for a long time or the other way is you're saving a lot of energy for the run if you can reduce your power output by five percent then actually you can go in the same pace that you wanted to go in terms of time but you can save five percent of energy which you can contribute to the run that's a real key kind of determinant of that overall time i guess yeah it's interesting how the you know i said what i said earlier is that the margins for triathlon are greater but that's probably not entirely the case especially in long course you know the this the, those marginal gains because of the duration of the of the race as you so correctly point out kurt um they end up translating into you know, not insignificant actual minutes and seconds at the end of the day. I think triathlon's got a massive potential for this level of innovation to come in. And, you know, you, you've probably seen a little bit of it come in with some of the kind of much faster times in Ironman races. I guess the, the hardest thing with Ironman in terms of pushing times is, is course demands and different courses and not having that kind of standardized approach to elevation and distance and conditions so you're not repeating the same races over and over again that kind of contribute to these faster rides but you we've there has been from my understanding a big drop in terms of the the overall times but definitely times from kind of the bike leg i guess has had a big shift um and you're kind of seeing this now this new world of uber bikers or whatever people are referring to and the way they come in and try and drop a four-hour bike leg in and hang on for dear life in the run i guess and um you know i'm maybe what will happen is as that kind of uh technology increases and the demands of going that fast reduce then people who are much better runners than these people can actually tolerate these higher cycling speeds because you need less power to go that pace and um then you can you can bolt on a, a really fast marathon on the back of it and start to see some some lightning fast times I think another point too, specifically related to triathlon is that, um, 
from talking to some of the pro athletes, there's just been this increase in the level of performance. Like everyone's been stepping it up where it used to be, you could be a really good cyclist and be an okay runner and swimmer, but now you have to be exceptional at all of them and just slightly more exceptional at one of them. Yeah. Like uh, even knowing some of the triathletes in the UK, um, you know, I've been fortunate that I know through cycling and being back in the UK and I'm based up in Leeds in the UK. So, um, there's the Leeds chain gang, which is kind of a Tuesday night ride that everyone goes out on and goes full gas and you know the brownlees turn up to that and they're holding their own with elite level cyclists you know we have people who turn up who are on world tour teams and the brownlees are always still there at the end and these guys have also probably done a swim in the morning and got to run after it to do as well and they're still able to hang it with kind of elite level cyclists so the level of physical performance is is pretty impressive and now the the science that's being wrapped around it be it from a preparation point a technology point even a strategy and uh, management point is is definitely where kind of the future of that performance will come because there are so many points to intersect you've got you know cooling heat hydration fueling and i think all these things are still untapped in terms of ways to really innovate around them and provide specific strategy to really optimize people's performance well we know we you know that uh, andrew and i agree with you on that point <laughs> definitely that's an understatement. Yep. Yeah. yeah. We've had many discussions about that in the past. Um, and I'm sure we will have many more in the future, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's really interesting to look at how some of the, the technology is kind of lining up with the performance level that's there, or maybe just people are looking in new places because everything else has gotten so competitive. Um, and that's, that's what's uncovering all this innovation right now. Yeah. It seems to me, and this is, you know, um, kind of my, through, through my lens, but, uh, there'll be some, some element of performance that, uh, that, that people start getting focused on and a lot of attention is paid to it. If it's something that's, you know, lucrative, if you can make a product or a service that can make people better, uh, or faster by leveraging whatever this new innovation is. And then a lot of people pile on and they, they, they spend a bunch of time until that there's some kind of convergence and then they move to something else. Like if you look at wheels, you know, when, uh, there's so many people making wheels these days and, uh, there is quite a bit of convergence, although there's some pretty exciting stuff happening at flow based on our conversation with John last week. Yes. Yes. There's uh, definitely some innovation still going on, but I will say that a lot of the designs have converged on a very wide, relatively shallow depth compared to what we're traditionally used to. Uh, and John confirmed that where he said one of their fastest designs was actually their gravel wheel, which was a surprise to him and a surprise to us. Yeah. So what I was getting at is that then there'll be something else, some other um, realm or, or uh, opportunity to get faster and then people will pile on to that. So I guess, Kurt, the the final question we really have is, um, you know, within what you can share or you want to share without giving your competitors an edge, uh, what kind of innovations are you looking at for maybe the next quadrennial or even over the next year getting ready for the, the delayed Tokyo Olympics? I think um, there's always future work to be doing on the data, for sure. I mean, we collect a lot of data and we probably action half of it and i think um you know even historical analysis of that data is super key and with innovations and technology around better ways of handling data and you know people who specifically train around data science and, and understanding that um, machine learning and things like that i think there's so much potential for that kind of technology to merge into the insights from the data because like i said we have databases full of 
any metric you can think of for any amount of time over multiple years for multiple athletes. And there is, you know, we only tap on the potential of that in terms of understanding performance moving forward. So I think that's definitely a big innovation is understanding that long-term data piece. Um, with tech and bikes and things like that, it's, it's definitely, um, like you said, it, it, it's moving forward. And I think it's starting to potentially slow down in terms of where long-term things can be there is definitely some stuff that we're working on in the, in the background which will give us you know a competitive edge but um you're looking at now kind of maximize on small gains you know people talk about how much drag a bike is compared to people and i think we're probably at the, the limits potentially of that kind of stuff um but yeah that's really interesting to see and then you know i think with with track cycling it's going to be really fascinating to see how it moves forward with um with sprint in particular, I think is super interesting because um, sprint, the speeds that people are going now are, um, you know, are, are so fast that it's, it's starting to really understand um, how that can move forward. And you look at the times that, you know, people are starting to do now uh, and the speeds they're going at, tracks actually probably aren't designed to go that fast. And I think that'll be a really interesting kind of innovation moving forward because we to, we can start to see in the future a little bit with some of the kind of stuff we see in altitude. So you, as you know, when you go to altitude, um, air density goes down and you get um, and you get less aerodynamic drag essentially, um, which for endurance kind of is compromised with physiological decrements as well. But in sprint, essentially you see very little decrement in physical attributes compared to the kind of drag. So you see the times that people are doing in altitude and just the ability to handle a bike on a track at that speed is, is starting to actually become a problem because bank, the banking of tracks was made essentially for certain speed ranges and now people are exceeding them and it's actually really difficult to just keep your bike in a straight line and hold it down because of the force that that's the centrifugal force that you're producing actually just wants to flick you out of the track um so it'll be interesting to see where sprint goes with that and if we start to see higher bank tracks to try and hold people in especially when kieran racing where you've got three or four guys within 10 centimeters of each other trying to race for the line. I think it'll be really interesting to see how, how people deal with that because the times that we were seeing at altitude, we're now pretty much seeing at sea level with some of the top performers. So um, yeah, that'll be a really interesting thing to see in terms of innovation and also just seeing what, where um, it goes from a development point of view and how the UCI wants to move forward with track cycling. Um, people, I don't know if they know who are listening, but there's been a big, change in the way the UCI wants to structure their calendar and they're looking at trying to get more kind of um, shorter bunch race kind of formats. So looking at kind of six day kind of style of racing where they're getting a lot more kind of randomness and maybe that alludes to a little bit that you were saying, um, Andrew, around kind of physiology being the main determinant of performance. I think the UCI are trying to um, play that playing field a little bit by introducing a little bit more of kind of the bunch style racing. And, you know, if you're not a purist track cyclist, then that's probably the most easiest and interesting um, format to follow. Everyone loves a good elimination race. So, um, you know, it's an easy one to start. Whereas the, the team pursuit is, you know, for the pretty purists, I guess, in terms of track cycling. So I'll be interested to see where that goes as well. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to see where the Olympics goes and um, the performances that we can potentially expect there. This has been a very interesting discussion because I really didn't appreciate how much technology and how much innovation goes into the world of track cycling. Um, I kind of expected it, but it's always eye-opening to have one of these conversations. So 
Um, I hope that some of our listeners will be inspired to go out and test out their local velodrome if they if they're lucky enough to live near one. Yeah, we we, we in southern Ontario have uh, have Milton, but of course uh, it's it's not. Well, I actually don't know this for a fact, but I imagine that it's not currently open at least until they, you know, there's a little bit more containment and clarity from our provincial government on uh, on what's going on with COVID nineteen. Yeah, I would imagine most facilities are closed right now, but at least. Um, at least people can go and research the, uh, you know, the track bikes they want to spend their money on because that's what cyclists <laughs> like to do is uh, Absolutely. buy a nice shiny bike. And I think as well, like Canada are definitely trying to push forward their kind of um, their scene in terms of track cycling. So at the moment, like you said, you've got Milton and you've got um, some smaller tracks, but they're really pushing on having a lot more tracks available over the next kind of five or 10 years as a legacy piece to encourage um that track scene because we're already seeing it in Milton like even me being there for 20 months like some of the kids who started off when I started there are now pushing their way into junior development teams and actually there's a real exciting level of talent that's going to show in the next five or ten years on the track from Canada and I think that legacy piece is going to be really exciting. That sounds great that's awesome to hear. Well Andrew is this a good place to wrap up? I think it is. Yeah. I've definitely whet my appetite here for track cycling again. So um, maybe I'll have to look into going back to Milton, making the trip back to Ontario and, and going for another session once everything goes back to normal or as close to normal as we can expect. Yes, let's do it. We'll go. I actually, I'm embarrassed to admit, I I have not built been to Milton uh, other than for a conference. And so I really got to get my butt out there too. Oh, once yeah, it's, you'll, uh, once it's clear. you'll have to come up. We'll get you some bikes and we'll go out on the track. It's uh, It's good fun. Oh, yeah. Well, now, now I'm definitely going now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's extra incentive. There Thanks for that. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks so much for the discussion. Um, we'd love to hear feedback from uh, any of our listeners, just because this is kind of a, a little bit of a newer area for us with track cycling. But um, if there's interest in this, we can certainly pursue other other guests who are related to the industry or related to that, that particular area of the sport. Yeah, and even if folks aren't uh, you know aren't track riders currently, they may become uh, after hearing this conversation. But also uh, the the carryover kind of findings and, and research that Kurt mentioned, I think, is going to be applicable to folks who are in uh, more mainstream road cycling or, or time trial or triathlon as well. So thanks again for for the time. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, guys. <laughs>